0: There once was a king who offered a prize to an artist who could paint the best picture of peace. The contest stirred the imagination of artists across the land, and many came wanting a chance at winning this prize. Paintings from far and wide began to arrive at this kingdom, and eventually the king began to unveil all of these pieces that had been churned in. And one after another, a peaceful scene would appear on a canvas. The crowd would cheer and stand in awe at the sheer talent of these artists. The tensions grew then as only two pictures remained covered. As the king pulled the cover from one, a hush fell over the crowd. It was a picture of a calm lake, and the lake was a perfect mirror for the peaceful, towering mountains all around it. Overhead, there was a beautiful blue sky. There were fluffy white clouds, and along the grassy shore, a flock of sheep graced there by the waters, completely undisturbed. All who saw this picture started murmuring to one another, surely this is The picture of peace. This was the winner. But then the king uncovered the last painting, and then the crowd gasped with horror. On this picture, it had mountains like the previous one, but they were rugged and bare. And above was not a peaceful sky, but an angry sky from which rain fell and which lightning shot across the skies. Down the side of the mountain tumbled a foaming waterfall, and you could almost feel the cold, penetrating spray. This picture did not look like peace at all. But when the king looked closely, he saw that a little bird had built a nest on a branch of a tree, a tree that reached out into the direction of this tumultuous waterfall. Yet there in the midst of the rush of angry water, this bird sat completely undisturbed by the stormy surroundings in perfect peace. Despite the raging storm and the blowing wind, the little bird rested in perfect confidence that this home in the tree was a fortress of safety. This was true peace in the middle of outer turmoil. And so the king, to the surprise of many, chose this last picture. The story, in a powerful way, I think, communicates two different ideas about what peace is in our world. This first painting, which people thought of as peace, described a type of peace that was based on external circumstances. It was free of problems and catastrophe. It had perfect tranquility. The problem is that such peace needs to be closely guarded from external dangers. And if you've lived for any length of time, you know that external things will come into your life and it will rob you of this kind of peace. Whether it's problems at your job, problems at home, health problems or natural disasters or wars or conflicts or death or sickness or disease, a type of peace that rests on external circumstances, will surely be interrupted by life over and over and over again. And this is why the second picture is far more powerful and far more beautiful, for it acknowledges the difficulties that we all face in our own life. It is not ignorant to the hardships we all face. So true peace is not the absence of problems, but is instead having peace in the midst of them, even as this bird does with all the turmoil around it. So it is not a shallow type of peace, which is dependent on external circumstances, but is instead a superior peace based on what one is resting in. For the bird, it was her nest. It was her Fortress of safety in which she rested secure from all trouble. But what about you here this morning? What is it that you are resting in peace for today? This question is important for all of us to consider on the regular. For if we are not resting securely ourselves in the right thing, we may quickly lose peace. And if we lose peace, How can we as the church hope to share that which we ourselves do not possess? Ultimately, we are reminded even as we've sung this morning over and over again that our peace, our true peace, comes from resting in Jesus Christ and what he's done. Our peace is not derived from our performance or our abilities. Our peace is not derived from our circumstances or situations. But it comes ultimately from what Christ has done For us, he satisfied the wrath of God with his death on the cross fully and completely. And now he intercedes for us at the right hand of God. And so it is this truth that our peace comes from Jesus who has made us at peace with God that grounds Paul's words of encouragement here to the believers. So we are not only to seek this peace in Christ, and to have it ourselves, but then we are to live at peace with others around us. And so we do this here this morning together as we seek harmony with one another. This brings us back to Philippians chapter 4, verse 2. As we come back to our text, we find that Paul turns for the first time in the letter to address a specific problem in the church. And that is a problem between two women in the church, Iodia and Syntyche. Now it's here that we learn that we don't know much of what is actually taking place here in Paul's letter. As one person points out, we don't know the nature of disagreement between the two women. We don't know who this true partner is that Paul is calling upon. Nor do we know who Clement is, except that he was likely a Gentile based on his name. But what is likely is that these two women were powerful, influential people in the church. But even that, we can't know for sure. But despite this, what we do know is that Paul calls for these two women to be at peace with one another. They are to strive towards this end. They are to pursue harmony and agreement in the Lord. What Paul calls for here then isn't all that different than we've already covered in this letter so far. For we remember in chapter 2, verse 2, that Paul calls for all believers to have the same mind of Christ Jesus the Lord. To have the same attitudes and thoughts as Jesus. And to live in unity and peace with each other. And so Paul calls them here to evidence that Peace they have with God to each other. So this brings up a question for us here this morning. What do we do when such incidents like this occur in our own church? How should we handle conflict and disagreement that fractures our relationships to others? While we don't wish for conflict or disagreement, I don't think any of us want that, it is inevitable that it will happen at times in our church. And it's not as if this will only happen with immature believers, but it may also happen with mature believers who are striving to see the gospel advanced. For even as Paul says here, these women are ones who contended for the gospel with Paul. They were with him through thick and thin. These people loved Jesus, and yet they were at odds with each other. So what do we do when we encounter conflict and disagreement that it begins to disrupt our relationships to each other? While Paul is addressing a somewhat vague situation, there are some general things that we can take away. First, as Paul addresses these women, we notice he doesn't rehash the details of the argument or dispute for us to take sides. That's not his focus. His focus isn't on who is more right and and who is more wrong. Instead, he calls both of them to focus on agreeing in the Lord. And the purpose, the reason why he does this, is to call them to a higher purpose. The purpose of having the mind of Christ in their dealings with one another. And so this is the first starting point that he gives to them. He calls them to evidence humility as they work out this conflict. Humble yourselves and own your part of the problem or conflict. In all conflicts, this is crucial for all of us to do. For it is rare in conflict for just one of the people to be 100% right and the other person 100% wrong. Now, of course, we like to believe that we're that rare exception in almost all circumstances, but this is not the case. So all conflict and disagreements, Paul is calling them to walk in humility. Take a hard look at yourself to see where you may be wrong, and so confess it and repent it. In the words of Jesus, we must be careful not to have a log in our own eye when we are trying to address the speck in another's. So this is the first step forward in reconciling. But second, we notice that Paul calls for godly outside counsel in helping them to resolve their differences. While we don't know much about this true partner, what we do know is that he was calling on these women to receive help so that the relationship might be mended and put back together and so the same can be good and helpful for all of us to do we should be willing to receive help and to invite wise godly counsel into our lives especially when we've hit a brick wall where our relationship is at stake with others Sometimes we don't want a third party intervening or or interviewing us or or talking to us about this conflict because sometimes we're afraid. We actually might be the person in the wrong. But this is all the more reason why we should be open to it. We must humbly acknowledge that we are sinners in need of grace. So in humility, we must acknowledge the possibility that I may be more wrong than I care to admit. And then find a godly, mature believer that both parties will agree on seeing. So whether it's in our marriages, whether it's another person in this church, receive help, welcome help from the body of believers in this church. Third, we also find that Paul then reminds them of their shared identity and calling. Paul calls on this true partner here to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co workers whose names are in the book of life. In reminding them of the gospel and their names being in the book of life, he's reminding them of their shared identity together in Christ. They are together the blood bought people of Jesus. So remember that the person you are in conflict with, Jesus died. To save that person. He died to bring you together. So seek harmony with this one you are in conflict with. Be at peace. For one day you both will be in heaven rejoicing together. So have a heavenly perspective. Do this because Christ Jesus has done something far more powerful and difficult. He earned your peace With God by purchasing it with his very own blood. So strive to evidence that peace in the way that you live with each other. It's from here then that Paul calls for the believers to then rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again rejoice. So rather than being characterized by disunity and discord, they should instead be defined by continuing to rejoice, continued rejoicing. After all, think on the reality that your names are written in the book of life. So Christians are called to rejoice always. It's a command that is not optional, and it is rooted in what God has done for us. Now, in speaking of the necessity to rejoice in the Lord, we should be clear that Paul is not calling for us to put on, you know, this fake smile like we're happy all the time, even when our loved ones die or even when we're going through severe pain. That is not the type of joy that Paul is talking about here. That would more resemble the Joker from Batman more than it does Paul here or Jesus. So while joy certainly involves happiness, we must remember together that it transcends this fleeting emotion The greater sense of well being and peace. I think this is very clear as we see Jesus himself weep at Lazarus's tomb and experience a wide array of emotions in his ministry. If we boiled joy down to just simply being happy, then I don't think we could say Jesus would fit this definition, and neither would Paul. For as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6:10, we are always sorrowful, yet rejoicing. So joy is something far more than just the emotion of happiness, and it coexists with the wide array of emotions that we experience. I think this reality is most clearly perceived as we contemplate the cross of Jesus Christ together. Even as we've sung this morning about the death of Jesus together, We experience sadness and sorrow. We feel ashamed that it was our sins that made it necessary for Jesus to die. We are grieved that he was beaten, mocked, and scorned. We are horrified that our sins were so bad that it took the very Son of God to die in our place. And so take the eternity of hell which we deserve. But at the same time, we are glad he was willing to go through this for you for me we are amazed that he would willingly subject himself to such humiliation we are astounded that he would die for us when we've done everything to deserve the exact opposite we stand in awe at the cross as we behold jesus slain for us and in reflecting on these truths there is joy There's this deep abiding sense of wellness, of goodness, and peace. And it's rooted in the amazing finished work of Christ for us. And I think that's what Paul is more or less getting at here, that type of joy that we should exude in all of life. It's accompanied by happiness, sorrow, awe, and wonder. And so we rejoice always in Christ because he has done something so powerful and so amazing that it demands it. And more than this, he's made us his own children. He's written our names in the book of life. So this is the joy then that flows out of us, or should flow out of us, into being gracious, gentle people that Paul calls for here. He calls us out of this rejoicing then to let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. So rather than being nitpicky or a grumbler towards others, we ought to be characterized by a gentleness, a, a long suffering towards each other in their shortcomings, even as God Himself has been towards us. And it's important to note that this graciousness that He calls for isn't just to be extended towards. Some people that we like, but towards everyone. We are to be the type of people that are known by our gracious demeanor across the globe. So would you be known then as a gracious and gentle individual in your dealings with others around you? Would your neighbors, friends, family members call you a gracious and gentle person? Or would they instead paint you as a person who is abrasive and harsh? And really, no one really wants to be around you. Early on into my marriage to Shannon, I can say beyond a shadow of a doubt that I was not nearly as gracious or gentle as I should have been. And I still have a long ways to go. Now, when Shannon brought this to my attention, I I thought she was being irrational. I thought she was being, you know, really sensitive. After all, I wasn't trying to be mean or harsh intentionally. I just spoke the truth as I saw it. And it was her responsibility to just, you know, deal with it. Often this attitude backfired and and caused much conflict in our marriage. For I had little thought about the way I said things, and it did far more harm than good. You could say I was like a really, really, really bad pool player. If you ever played the game of pool, and even if you haven't, uh, you know the intention is to sink either the solid or stripe balls into the pockets around there, right? And to do this requires great accuracy. You need to hit the ball with just the right amount of force to get the other ball into the pocket. And if you hit the ball too hard or too soft, you completely end up missing what you're intending. Well, if you compared my words to pool, you know, as hitting the ball... I hit that ball way too hard most often than not. And it brought about a huge miss with unintended consequences such as hurt feelings and and miscommunication. And so we must realize as Christians our words and actions can do great damage if we are not careful. Our words should carry just the right amount of force so that it doesn't crash into the other person and send them hurling into an unintended direction. Nor should our words be so gentle that it doesn't cause them to move when it's needed. How we phrase our words, along with tone of voice and intensity, ought to be gracious and gentle with all people. And so this requires great discernment and it requires great wisdom. And when we find that balance, we are then able to cultivate environments where we together are at peace with one another. So it's not enough just to say the right thing. We must say it with the right force. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, this is very difficult to do. Again, it's easier to be gracious with those whom we like, we respect, we get along with. But let's be real here. It's not easy to be gracious with those whom we deem unworthy. We want to unload on people who are mean to us. We don't want to be kind to those who are unkind to us. We don't want to be gracious to those who are incredibly unloving, condescending, and rude to us. It's tiring. It's difficult. It's draining. So what do we do in these moments when the struggle is real? First, in our struggle, we must remind ourselves over and over again, of who our God is and what he's done for us. For even when we were his enemies, Christ died for us. When we were completely undeserving, he still lavished his grace upon us. And so it is this grace of God upon us that we must remind ourselves of over and over and over again. It is this grace shown to us by God that compels us and motivates us to be gracious with others when we reflect on what God has done for us, when we are so undeserving and so unworthy and how gracious he is with us when we didn't deserve it at all, we must then take what he's done for us and share it with others around us. So we remind ourselves of the graciousness of God to us, but then second, we must remind ourselves, as Paul does with them, that Christ will return soon. We believe that Jesus will return. This makes all the world of difference in our dealings with one another. We can overlook offenses against us. We can overlook all that is done that is wrong to us. Because we realize that when Jesus returns, he will fix all things. He will take care of all of it in the end, and he will bring about perfect peace. So we cultivate peace then as we rejoice together and as we learn to speak graciously with one another and are known by our acts and deeds. It's here then that Paul says, don't worry then about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Rather than worrying about anything, pray in everything. And what Paul calls for here is to allow your anxiety, your worry, to drive you to prayer. Let that emotion that you're feeling be a reminder that you need to pray all the more. So pray, for this is the remedy and the solution for an anxious, worried heart. Now, in speaking of not worrying about anything here, uh, we need to understand what Paul is saying here, because sometimes the feeling of worry and anxiety we experience can be a very, very good thing, and sometimes it can also be a very, very bad thing. For instance, if you feel great concern and panic when your child starts to run into the middle of a road when there's an oncoming car, that's a good kind of worry, that is right for you to feel, and it's that fear and anxiety that drives you then to protect your child, to take him out of the way of that car. This is the type of worry and anxiety that Paul often experienced and of what he wrote about often. He was anxious. He was worried to see the progress of the gospel in the churches he founded and he often lost much sleep over it, even as he wrote in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. 28. This concern and anxiety that he experienced drove him to work hard and to continually pray. So when Paul says, don't worry about anything, or, or, or don't be anxious, we need to recognize that he's talking about the ungodly type of anxiety that paralyzes and incapacitates a person it is a type of anxiety that unhinges a person and really just pulls them apart as one person puts it godly concern leads to action ungodly anxiety doesn't godly concern leads you to do all that you can do ungodly concern is instead obsessed with things that you can't do Godly concern acknowledges dependence upon God in prayer. And ungodly worry grows out of self-sufficiency and looks to the self. So in understanding this difference, we find that Paul is speaking about this ungodly type of worry. So rather than be paralyzed by, by anxiety or concern, Paul calls us to fall on our knees before God in prayer. Saturate your concerns, your worries, in prayer and thanksgiving. For when we unload these concerns upon God in prayer, we find not only our own burdens greatly relieved as God carries them, but we also find that he carries us. So practically speaking, then, it might be helpful to list out the things that cause you stress or anxiety in your life. Those things which really just stress you out, write them down. Create a list. Pray through them. And this is especially helpful when you're not exactly sure why you're stressed or why you're anxious. Can't tell you how many times my wife and I have talked with one another and we're like, you know, we're just feeling stressed today and I have no idea why. And so it's like, okay, let's, let's write it down so we can pray about it. Because like half the time, I don't even think we're aware why we experience anxiety so it might be helpful to write it out think about it and then bring it to god in prayer and as you pray for these things and mark them off make sure to thank god at the same time as paul calls for here so it's not only ask god to help with these concerns but to thank him at the same time and we do this before he even answers our prayers So why is it then that we thank God before he answers our prayers? I mean, logically speaking, we ask, he answers, we thank. But Paul says here, we ask and thank at the same time. And we do this because we know that our God is sovereignly good. And he is in control. We know that he will do what is best. And so we both ask God, casting our cares on him, thanking him at the same time because we know that he will answer our prayers in the way we would want him to if we knew everything he did. So we pray then with thanksgiving and so prepare ourselves to accept whatever it is that he might answer. And the result, Paul tells us here, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The result of a prayerful life is our anxiety being traded for peace as we recognize that God is with us. And it brings our hearts and our minds to rest as we sit in his awesome presence in prayer. Whereas worldly peace is something that must be guarded, God's peace is something that guards us no matter what we're going through. Like that bird in the nest, it is God's peace that keeps us safe as we rest in him. So We pray ceaselessly, and we do this thankfully. We trade our worries and anxieties for the peace that God offers all of us. Finally then, we find peace with God as we dwell in this world intentionally. And I think this is what Paul is calling for in the final verses. First, we dwell on all that is godly and true. Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, morally excellent, and praiseworthy, these things dwell on them. So it's in this verse that Paul calls for believers to saturate their minds on all things that are godly and true and noble and right. All things which are healthy, helpful, and holy. Now, this is an incredibly practical word to us in our day and age. For often, I think our minds are not saturated in truth or that which is right, but is instead sucked into what this world propagates. Consider that from the moment you wake up, your phone beckons you to check social media, to the news, to YouTube, to Twitter, to TikTok, to politics, to a whole number of other things which are often trash or really junk. But it's here that Paul says that is not the way Christians ought to dwell in this world. We should instead dwell on all that is good, right, and true, and our minds should not be directed by the world, but instead by God's unchanging word. So practically speaking, what is it that consumes your mind most during any given week? Is it consumed with godly thoughts, or is instead consumed with worldly trash? This question is important for us to contemplate because what we focus on and what we gaze upon most will in turn become a part of us. So if we consider and contemplate that which is anxiety-riddled all the time, you're going to experience anxiety. But if you contemplate long and hard our God. And his word and his unchanging truth, there's immeasurable peace as we dwell in it. So, if you are not doing this already, consider memorizing scripture, consider taking with you a passage of God's truth with you each and every day. Allow your mind to bake in the unchanging truths of God, gaze upon his word. For in so doing, it reminds you of that which is infinitely beautiful and glorious, Jesus Christ himself. And so by gazing upon him, not only do we become like him, but we gain a deep sense of peace as our eyes are trained on him. So we dwell intentionally by focusing on all that is godly and true, and then by dwelling intentionally on godly examples. Paul says finally here, do what you have learned, and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. What Paul says here isn't all that much different from what we touched on last week in chapter 3, verse 17. It's here that Paul calls for the Philippians to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ, imitate godly examples. And so he calls them once more here to really do the same thing again. And everything you've learned, received, heard, and seen, so do imitate these things. So the more we dwell on that which is holy, right, and true, both in our thinking and doing, the more we really come to rest in God himself. And the more we come to rest in God and his ways, the more we come to know of his deep, abiding peace and security. So it is to this end that Paul calls us to live at peace with one another as we not only find it in God, but then we share it with each other in these ways. So by God's grace, may we evidence his peace. May we truly know it, attain it, and then share it with one another. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you thankful for Christ Jesus. It is in Christ that we have peace with you. We are no longer your enemies, but your friends. We are your children. We are your sons and daughters in Christ. And we've been united together as a family. So with this victory that you have won for us, Lord, may we share this peace that we have with one another as we adopt the mind of Christ together. Help our church to truly dwell deeply in the gospel, to saturate our minds with all that is holy, true, and right. And by so doing, Lord, grant us a peace that passes all understanding so that we might share it with others who desperately need it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.